Over 100 people from the ages of 2 to 80 were asked the question, what makes you feel connected? What makes you feel loved? From the voices of different generations, hear their answers. Handwritten notes. Casseroles. Being invited in. Reading a book together. The passing of the feast. Family walks. Youth group. When I see my friends at preschool. Surprise phone calls. Making music with other people. Home-cooked food. Belly laughs. Eye contact. <laughs> Dinner parties. An inside joke. Hugs. Dancing with my partner in the kitchen. <laughs> Today we light the candle of love as a reminder that from the very first generation, God has surrounded us with love. May this good news, these threads of love, not only weave deeper connections between neighbors, but shape our actions and allow us to see God more clearly. In a lonely world, let this light shine bright. From generation to generation, we are held in God's love. Thanks be to God for that good news.
find anything. It's just unique enough that you can choose what it means. How about that? Yeah. Parker, your name means park keeper. I know. Jane, Jimmy, there you are. I looked you up. Your name is Hebrew, and it means he who surplants. Connor, you are hound lover.
Please hear this reading from Psalm chapter 96. Say among the nations, the Lord is king. The world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. The Lord will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy, for the Lord is coming, coming to judge the earth. The Lord will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with truth. The psalmist reminds us of the glory of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Loving God, we thank you this morning for the gift of family. Families we have grown into, families we have chosen, and families who have chosen us. We thank you for placing us into communities that nurture and care for one another, and even for the challenge of growing together in grace. And we pray today for those who do not have a family to call their own, for children in the care system, and elders whose family have all gone on ahead, for neighbors who are isolated and lonely, for people who have been abused and abandoned and fallen through the cracks, for those who have been told they must earn love and that they aren't deserving. May they know your companionship and guidance and care. As you called Joseph to give Jesus a family home and a history, we pray for all who provide that place for others to grow into who you made them to be. May they be flexible and courageous, compassionate and hopeful. You come to dwell among us to save us with your presence, and we thank you for your promise to be with us always, as you have led your people in the past, so even now you reveal yourself in a tiny baby in a change of heart, in an ordinary life, and an extraordinary love. We pray today for those who are desperate for your saving grace, those who are trapped in cycles of violence or poverty or grief or illness, those who have been trafficked or exploited, those staring at closed doors and longing for options to open. May they know your healing liberation as you bore a common name with uncommon power and held that power in relationship to the world you so love. We pray today for all who reveal you to others, for those who give their energy to prayer and service, who radiate welcome and peace, who work for justice, who speak your word just where it's most needed. May they be refreshed and renewed by your constant presence as they reflect your grace and model right relationship with you. You offer yourself to us, O God, and in turn, we offer what we have, trusting you will turn it and us to your kingdom work in ways we cannot yet imagine, but will join as your people. May our lives magnify your love here and now. We ask these things and all things in the name of the one who saves by being with us, Jesus the Christ, Emmanuel. Amen. Amen. 
Gospel according to Matthew. These are the facts concerning the birth of Jesus Christ. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her fiancé, being a man of stern principle, decided to break the engagement, but to do it quietly. He didn't want to publicly disgrace her. As Joseph lay awake considering this, he fell into a dream and saw an angel standing beside him saying, Joseph, son of David, don't hesitate to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you shall name him Jesus, meaning Savior, for he will save his people from their sins. This will fulfill God's message through his prophets who had proclaimed, Listen, the virgin shall conceive a child. She shall give birth to a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. When Joseph awoke, he did as the angel commanded and brought Mary home to be his wife. But she remained a virgin until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. The Gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. checked. I have all of my pages this morning, so we will not have a repeat of last week. Let's pray together. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, and may we hear a word from you today. Amen. I'm going to start this morning with something I know you're going to love, a pop quiz. I know you're probably not excited about that. We'll get to it in a second. But as you heard, this morning's gospel reading is from Matthew. It's Matthew's telling of the nativity story. But as church folks, we tend to be more familiar with Luke's version. That's the one we will read on Saturday for Christmas Eve. And for most of us who spent any time in church, that one feels like the scriptural version of your favorite pajamas, just comfy and cozy and familiar. You've heard it probably your whole life. But this morning, we're considering a much more succinct version of Jesus' birth. Matthew's telling is only eight verses. So as your pastor, this gives me the perfect excuse to see how well you know your Gospels and how much you were just paying attention to what Scott read for us. Because our brains tend to run all of the nativity stories together. And, and most of the time, that's fine. But it's not helpful when we're just trying to talk about one individual story. So, I'm going to give you five true-false questions. If you think this statement is true and you're comfortable doing so, I'd like for you to raise your hand. If you're not comfortable raising your hand either way, that's fine. But I promise this is a judgment-free zone. So as Martin Luther said, I want you to sin boldly. <laughs> he did actually write that. He wrote, sin boldly. Okay, here we go. 
You've just heard the Matthew story, so I think you're going to ace this. True or false? We hear Mary speak in Matthew's nativity story. If you think that's true, raise your hand. That is false. Mary does not speak in Matthew's telling, neither really does Joseph. Mary speaks, we hear her most in Luke's gospel, specifically with the Magnificat. Here's question two. True or false, the angel Gabriel visits both Mary and visits Mary in both Matthew and Luke. Is that true or false? Raise your hand if you think it's true. Oh, you're doing well. That is also false. Gabriel is specifically mentioned in Luke's gospel only. Welton, you should be so proud. They know so many things. <laughs> true or false? In Mark's version of the nativity story, the wise men, magi, whatever word you want to use, arrive when Jesus is a toddler. If you think that's true, raise your hand. Good, that's just a trick question. Uh, Mark doesn't have a nativity story at all. <laughs> true or false? John's gospel mentions Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem. If you think it's true, raise your hand. Good, also false, also a trick question. John's gospel does not have a nativity story. Okay, last one. True or false? If you think this is true, raise your hand. Nowhere in the Bible are cows, sheep, or Mary riding a donkey mentioned. If you think that's true, raise your hand. All of your hands should be up. That is true. <laughs> Nowhere in the Bible are cows or sheep or Mary riding a donkey mentioned. We have created all of it. Thank you for participating. You all get 100% because I make the rules and pop quizzes are not fair. Now... Let's talk about Matthew's gospel. If you read the newsletter this week, you saw that I wrote about what we're going to be doing with the narrative lectionary in the new year. I know all of you read that, I'm confident. But let me just remind you that we are going to be switching into Matthew's gospel in 2023. And for the Sundays from the Sundays of Christmas, all the way up into Pentecost, we are going to be in Matthew's gospel. We are going to be exploring the entire thing. So I'm going to give you a fuller uh, explanation of Matthew, the theology, Matthew's original audience, all of those sorts of details in the new year. So for now, what I want us to focus on is, is this story, and specifically on marriage and engagement in the ancient world. And I want us to do that, that by admitting that our knowledge is limited. Neither relationship, marriage, or engagement can be accurately equated to our modern practice. So what can we say for sure about this connection between Joseph and Mary? We know that life expectancy and was, was just lower because of a lack of medical knowledge, science, etc. People often had more than one spouse. Now, we don't know for Joseph if, if this is his first marriage, if this is a second marriage. We can be pretty sure it's Mary's because she's fairly young. We also know that the line between childhood and adulthood wasn't understood in the same way that we understand it now. There was no such thing as teenagers, let alone tweens or preteens or any of those labels that we use. We know for sure that younger girls were often engaged to older men. Rabbinic law during this period set the minimum age for marriage at 12 for girls and 13 for boys. And often a marriage agreement 
would be in place for quite a while before the couple lived in the same household and were intimate. We also know that a betrothal, as like the one between Mary and Joseph, was more legally binding than a modern engagement. These days, if you're engaged, you decide to call the engagement off. It's sad, but it really isn't a big deal. There's no legal ramifications. That is not the case with biblical uh, betrothal. Okay? It's, a, it's a different thing. And it's likely that at the time this morning's story takes place, both the marriage document, called the ketubah in Hebrew, it's likely both the marriage document and the bridal price had already been exchanged between Joseph and Mary's parents. Finally, the text points us to assume that there are really only two things that have not occurred between Joseph and Mary. They have not moved in together yet, and they have not been intimate as a married couple, which is the sticky point of the whole story. Matthew is slim on the details. Like I said, this is only eight verses. So we do not know how Mary gets pregnant, other than that the child is from the Holy Spirit, which is not a helpful description. We also don't know how Mary feels about being pregnant with this child from the Holy Spirit, because, again, we don't hear her speak in this telling. We also, to be fair, don't know what Joseph is thinking or feeling. But we do know that he is specifically described as a righteous man, which scholars interpret as less a statement about his character and more a way of saying that Joseph is one who lives according to the law. He is obedient to the Torah, which would, when he finds out that his espoused wife is pregnant, allow him to do a couple of things. A, publicly sentence Mary to death by stoning because she has been unfaithful. Or B, end the marriage contract. That's what Matthew calls dismissing her quietly. So those are really his two options. Now Joseph has set on option two. He's going to show more leniency than is required, which leads some folks, and myself included, to contend that the jury should really be out on whether or not Joseph was actually a righteous man be, because it seems, it seems a little less than righteous to dismiss and therefore condemn this young girl to poverty if not death. That doesn't, that doesn't seem righteous. It seems less than righteous to kick Mary when she's down or as we talked about last week, if you think about that Isaiah passage, to damage an already bruised reed. But I don't mind admitting I am not an expert on ancient Near Eastern customs or marriage practice, and dismissing Joseph for not coming up with another option for Mary in his culture and time is my modern, very biased reading. A more empathetic reading of Joseph is to remember that the upset, the sense of betrayal, the disappointment, and the host of other emotions that he must have experienced is very important. A more empathetic reading is to remember that Joseph doesn't know Mary yet. They might have spent some time together, but all that really exists between these two people is a legal connection, their word of commitment to their union, and Mary, who may or may not have had a choice in this arrangement, has now broken those parameters. 
whether or not she intended to, from Joseph's perspective, it probably seems like she has betrayed him and been unfaithful. This could easily raise questions for Joseph about Mary's character. Who is this woman he has agreed to marry? Who is the father of this child? How will this pregnancy impact Joseph's reputation and status in the community, and in a very real way, his ability to make any kind of money as a professional? Even without any moral judgments about Mary and her character, her pregnancy is outside of the norm, and it is a lot for Joseph to get mixed up in. Can we really blame him for not wanting to get his hands dirty? For not wanting to be involved in whatever this complex, messy situation is. Now, if you listen closely, you can just about hear the hollow twang of heartache in this story. You can feel the uneasy ceasefire between two hurting people. This wasn't either of their choices. The muffled ache of a relationship that's hanging by a thread echoes, if you listen carefully. And it's into that heartache, into that hurting, that an angel speaks. Speaking to Joseph in a dream, which is a favorite method of God throughout the biblical text, the heavenly messenger speaks to Joseph's resolve. Remember, he is resolved to putting Mary aside quietly. As one of my favorite uh, contemporary commentators, David Luce, so accurately points out, it takes a visit from an angel to calm all of this down and to orient Joseph to God's intentions. He is resolved. And angels also tend to show up within the biblical story only when heavy lifting is involved. This heavy lifting might not quite be what we expect, however. Because what we struggle with is how a baby could be conceived by the Holy Spirit. But as Dr. Robert Williamson explains, the ancient world wasn't as reluctant to believe in things such as divine pregnancies as we are. Think back to the Greek and Roman mythology you learned in school. Those legends and stories were part of the fabric of Joseph and Mary's part of their world. So the heavy lifting this angel comes to do is not so much to address how this pregnancy happened, which is always my first question. It's to address with Joseph his understanding of who this coming child is and how he will respond to this new life. There are really two options. One, Joseph can ignore the angel's words about the Holy Spirit and naming this baby, maintain his legal connection to Mary, make peace with his community knowing that Mary was intimate with someone else before their marriage, and do whatever personal wrestling it takes to raise another man's child. Or option two, Joseph can believe that this child is miraculous, somehow come into the world through the eternal to inhabit and be sheltered and grown in the body of this young woman he's betrothed to. This child is already part of Mary, sheltered under her heart in the safety of her womb. Now Joseph gets to decide what his role will be. And normally, I would say Mary has the harder job in pregnancy. 
Any of us who've been pregnant know it's, it's not an easy thing. She's doing the growing of this child, right? This is a very real pregnancy, holy or not. But the more I think about the situation, specifically Joseph's situation, the more I think about the challenges that he faces, because on the surface, it feels very much like Joseph is the third wheel, right? We don't talk about Joseph very much in the Christian tradition. He's there. He's in Matthew's gospel. He hangs around. He's in our nativity sets, but Mary is really the one we focus on. Joseph is not in the same intimate relationship with God that Mary is. The eternal is not inhabiting his body. And yet, and yet Joseph is just as chosen as Mary is. He is just as vital as Mary to the Christ child coming into the world because he provides something that Mary cannot. He provides his name. Did you catch that? Joseph is given the task of naming this baby, and as I said to the kids, what a name this is. Now, you, you know, of course, that Emmanuel means God with us, but I want you to also remember that Jesus, or Yeshua, Joshua in Hebrew, means God will save. So this coming child will not only be the embodiment of God on earth, he will be the embodiment of God's saving grace. This child is the culmination of God being vast enough to be invested in the welfare of all people and yet small enough and close enough to be fundamentally present with each and every one of us. And it's Joseph who gives Jesus this name, who claims Jesus, adopts him, and locates the Christ child within an earthly family, an earthly identity, which, of course, he needs. My friends, the good news this morning is that Joseph offers what he has to offer to God and to the Christ child, his name and his presence. This likely isn't ever what Joseph expects to be asked. It's likely not how he ever anticipated becoming a parent. And yet he does what's asked of him. He lays down his ego. He doesn't seek out glory. He offers what he can. He recognizes that he's needed, and that is what a righteous man does, what a father does, what a parent does. So thanks be to God for Joseph this morning and for all those who love us and show us their love by offering what they can.
As we come to this time of communion, we present ourselves before God, hungry for a taste of the Eternal's kingdom. In a world where evil and empire too often come together to hoard and exploit, we crave the fruits of the Spirit. We long for kindness. We dream of peace. We hope to be disciples of generosity, sharing and redistributing the resources God intends for the flourishing of all people. In awe and gratitude, we join together in praise of God, source of abundance, recognizing that since the beginning, God has been building a lineage of love and liberation, inviting all who wish to belong. God has shown us the way, taken on flesh and dwelled among us. And in Jesus, we come to understand God enfleshed as a brown, Jewish, Palestinian man, a refugee, born into a frowned-upon familial structure with neither security of wealth or access to power. His life is a witness to hope that does not come from climbing the ladder of success or of begging for crumbs of dignity. Hope that is born in community, nurturing love, taking risks together, multiplying what we have, and finding that more is more than enough. That is what Jesus offers. Like Jesus, we gather around a table with our friends, remembering that people of faith gather around tables just like this one in places near and far. This is not my table. This is not Northminster's table. This is God's table. And here, all are worthy and all are welcome. It is at this table that Creator, Christ, and Spirit dance as one. So may it always be. And now would you please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. On the night that he was handed over, while at supper with his friends, Christ gave us a pledge of love that does not go away with death. On that evening, he took bread, he gave thanks for it, and he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat all of you. This is my body, surrendered for you. He took a cup, he filled it with wine, he gave thanks for it, and he shared it with them, saying, Take and drink, all of you. This is the seal of the new covenant, my poured out life. I will drink this cup with you again at the table of God's joy in the new day that is coming. And whenever you do these things, remember me.
guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home. 